Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I can see that the biggest predictor of success is whether people are willing to invest in their own knowledge and understanding as an investor. If you're always learning and making sure that you're careful and trying to understand things better and become a better investor, eventually you sort of get better than enough people that you could be classified as a good investor. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. And today our guest is Claude Walker. Now you may remember Claude who appeared on our um, Common Investing Mistakes panel discussion at ShareSite. It's a real pleasure to have him back on. G'day Claude, how are you? Hi Phil, I'm well thanks, how are you? Always good. Now Claude is an Australian small company investor who looks for the best opportunities at the small end of the ASX. He's the founder of Ethical Equities and he looks for profitable ethical businesses suitable to invest in. So how did you get caught up in this investing business, Claude? Well, that's a bit of a long story, but essentially I was initially very interested in renewable energy and uh, environmental law and I had to have a law degree, but eventually I realized that the way that I could use my skills best would be in investing and in trying to create alternatives for people who might otherwise invest in companies that cause environmental harm. So that was a long time ago now, more than 10 years ago, I decided that I'd focus on investing and ethical investing in particular. So um, when did you start Ethical Equities? Uh, I think Ethical Equities, I started in 2013 now. So that's uh, just a website where I write about some of my uh, stocks that I like and where I make my mistakes publicly, but also some of my successes. And I look forward to the next evolution as well, because I'm constantly trying to improve it and and, and change what it is. At the moment, we have a uh, paid newsletter for uh, paying supporters. Uh, which is great. That's where I put most of my effort at the moment. So I haven't been publishing a lot. Okay, so you're covering a lot of a lot of shares on this at the smaller end of the Australian stock exchange. Let's just just give us an example of um, one or two of the the, the stocks that you've um, that you've looked at. So my longest term holding is a company called I think Kit McGrath Education Centres. That's something I bought many years ago. Now it was a little twenty to thirty cent stock at that stage. It had made a bad acquisition which had really caused troubles. They had to do a... Well, what do they, what do, they do? Just to start, what do yeah, they do? Yeah, so it's in the name, I guess. They do yeah. these like little tutoring franchises. Uh, so actually, a lot of people might have seen them on the street or in, in a town. They just tutor kids. It's mostly focused on bringing kids up to scratch. So if somebody's in year four and they're struggling with their maths and English, they're a little bit behind... A really good place to take them to improve that is a Kit McGrath Education Centre. They've been doing it for 50 years or so now. The big thing that's been the story with them, I guess, over the last few years is initially um, it was run in a way where the franchisees paid a flat rate. Over the course of the last few years, they've been transitioning more to this percentage model, which has the great uh, positive effect of allowing Kit McGrath to now spend more on marketing and they get some of that back. So it aligns the interests better. When they get some of that back, yeah. So the, um, the franchisee or Kit McGrath? Kit, well, Kit McGrath. So previously, the franchisee would just pay a flat rate to Kit McGrath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it didn't really matter to Kit McGrath that the, the mother company 
whether um, they were really successful or not because they're getting the same amount either way. Kit McGraw Education Centers was more motivated to grow the number of franchisees. Yeah. Now, that's not so good for the franchisees and it's not so good for Kit McGraw Education Centers in the end. By aligning the interests, Kit McGraw Education Centers, it made more sense to focus on increasing the revenue of existing franchisees as well as growing the network. And once they've done that, the economics of the business has improved. You've seen gross profit increase for quite a few years now. And I think that's my second or third biggest stock. It's a really simple, in some ways, boring business, but it has a lot of those uh, things that I look for. For example, at the time I bought in, it was run by the founder, Kit McGrath, and his son. So that's important. A lot of people have always said that. Look for a company that's run by the founder and, or that have got a majority ownership. Yeah, it's not fail safe. Nothing is. No. But that's definitely something that I like to see. But it's a good step in sort of understanding what motivates people, you know, um, the, their name is on the door essentially. Yeah. So there's, I like it when I can see that somebody has a bit of personal pride in their business. They're not just there to make money. You do often see successful founders try to pass on a business uh, to their children. And honestly, that's not a bad thing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, has mis- mixed degrees of success. But in the case of Kit McGrath Education Centers, if anything, I think the son, Storm, who's now the CEO... He's done really well in improving the business economics and, and making it a more attractive business to own shares in. So, I'm happy to continue to back him and, and I do, you know, this is definitely not a recommendation, but I still own shares in this company. I think it's a good, and I think it helps people as well, ultimately. I'm happy to see an affordable option for people to get their kids up to scratch. So, that's a good story where the outcome was good. What about some of the failures? Where, where have you gone wrong? Yeah, right. So, there's a classic one here. Like so many beginner investors, I started out by buying a company that had a great story and a lot of hype, but not so much success or even that much uh, potential for success. It was called Ceramic Fuel Cells. It eventually went to zero effectively. And I guess I was inspired by my uh, perhaps naive love of sustainability technology and became interested in the stock for that reason. Now, in the end of the day, I didn't lose all my money in it. But I did make an investment where I really didn't know what I was doing. After all, it was my first investment. And I think what happened was that I fell into what I call the hype trap. Yep. So, beginner investors can easily get excited by the fact that they see the shares of a company being very volatile. They feel like, oh, I could make a lot of money really quickly. And then they start to believe in the story far more than any sort of valuation. Now, when I... Uh, buy a company, I like to be able to understand how it's actually going to earn enough money to justify the market capitalization I'm paying for it. I I see people starting out buying stocks, they don't even understand what the market capitalization is um, or, or how a business is supposed to make the money. They really just focus on the share price. That's definitely not an approach that I think is successful. I've seen more people fail with that yeah, kind yeah. of uh, naivety than succeed. Um, but one really good way to stop yourself um, making a, be- a beginner mistake is by being really cautious of hype and always trying to calculate um, the actual free cash flow that the company is generating. Now, many companies that have a great story that you might find on um, you know, Twitter or Hot Copper or something like that, there's really more hype than there is cash flow. They may not even have revenue. If, if they do have revenue, they may have no free cash flow, so they're spending far more than they earn. And they'll be putting out market-sensitive announcements that you may not really understand that well. I'll give you an example of a company I owned recently. It was called uh, Novita. It is called Novita Healthcare, 
and I bought shares in at about 1.1 cents per share. It was very, very small market cap. It basically has exactly what I'm talking about, this uncommercialized technology uh, that may have some potential but is not bringing in any money. Um, that they'd done a sort of desperation capital raise. So the, the bargain hunter in me was looking for something like this Kit McGrath stock I was telling you about where something's gone wrong and they're a bit in a weak position and the share price is really low. So I bought it for that reason. To my surprise, it, it then not long after that, after they finished this capital raising, uh, started doing much more speaking at conferences, um, which they pay to attend. And I started seeing coverage of them in some... Uh, publications online where I think also you can sort of pay money to the relevant people and, and they write articles about you. So, so so there's going to be companies that are actually paying for exposure yeah. and feeding the hype machine. Is that, that how it works? That Definitely. They, there are companies that are many companies do this. They pay for exposure. And as a result of that, often the share price will go up because the exposure is usually positive. And also, you know, they may have like a good story to tell, but the people that are buying because of a story haven't heard of them yet. Unfortunately, it really just do- it does work. They pay investor relations people. They can pay to go in conferences. They can pay to get coverage. And as a result, so many people are hearing about them. You get a, a few of the right influential people uh, talking about them and suddenly the story becomes what people are buying into. And and this is something that people have really got to be aware of, don't they? Because yeah. it's a trap that they're yeah. going to... And they and then what happens is it's self-reinforcing. So the share price moves from $0.01 cent to $0.2.5 cents on the basis of a market-sensitive announcement, which really doesn't insure any money to the company at all. I think the announcement was they got a insurance code for uh, their product, which is uh, Tally Train, which is essentially a computer program that can help kids that have attention deficit problems. You know, the share price moves over 100%. Suddenly, it's on the, you know, most talked about stocks in hot copper and everyone's tweeting about it and stuff like this. You have people pile on and it pushes the share price up and up and up. And then it does another capital raising just a couple of months later at $0.06 cents per share. So, for the actual company itself that needs to raise cap- capital, it, it kind of makes sense for it to tell people about their story, get the share price up and raise capital at a higher price. But if you're the person that bought, that, that stock actually went to $0.10. Cents. Which still sounds cheap, doesn't it? It's, yeah, well, that's <laughs> it's, the thing. It's so cheap, but, yeah. You need to understand market capitalization, and the market yeah. capitalization had moved from you know three or four million to thirty or forty or fifty million. I can't remember exactly what it was. Now, but, I don't want to let you get away with using some jargon. You said capital raising. Yeah. So what happens with a capital raising? So capital raising—that's an important part of because watching this hype is often to do with capital raising. So that's essentially when a company um, like no- Novita Healthcare has this idea. And um, it needs money to convince doctors um, that they should use the product and prescribe the product rather than prescribing ADHD pills and stuff like that. And in order for that to happen, they need to get the relevant regulatory clearances. They need to get, you know, insurance codes, which was one of these announcements about that. But they also need to, like, let doctors know about it and tell them, hey, this is an option and also convince them. In order to convince them, they need to sort of essentially fund studies about it that proves it. And there's a whole bunch of challenges when you want to get doctors to start using your novel treatment. That's expensive and they need to get that money to do that before they can hope to get any money back. And the way that they get that money is they sell shares, they issue new shares in their own company and sell them to shareholders or not, if not existing shareholders, then new shareholders yep, to yep. investors. So they did that recently at one cents. 
Then they did a bunch of publicity and then did it again at about six cents. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can think of the market capitalization as the pizza mm-hmm. and the like the shares are each slice of pizza. So the pizza might be getting bigger, but if you're cutting it into more and more slices, each one slice could be still getting smaller. And this is why it's much riskier to be buying companies that aren't making money because they're the ones that if they're not making money, eventually they're going to need to get money from somewhere. More often than not, that is from issuing new shares. So until a company's profitable or at least got sustainable free cash flow, It's going to keep on very slowly or very quickly, depending on the exact case. But at some rate, there's going to essentially be more slicing. So this is the the pizza valuation model, PVM, I think we'll (laughs) call this. (laughs) I don't know how... I think that the pizza one's always the first way that I sort of understood it. No, that's a great great model. I like that. We'll um, we'll include that as the PVM. (laughs) Okay, nice. So... you're obviously dealing with people on Twitter and um, some of the subscribers and you're talking to them. Can you see if people are going to be successful and not successful as as investors? So I've been lucky enough to have people share their journeys with me quite a bit because I publicly talk about my journey and humans are um, reciprocal beings. So when I go and talk about my successes and failures and, and how I've progressed as an investor over time, I get people sharing the same thing back at me. So this is no scientific survey. This is just what people have told me over the years. And I can see that the biggest predictor of success is whether people are willing to invest in their own knowledge and understanding as an investor. I get people approach me with all sorts of things, but two extreme examples are, you know, your mortgage broker who's heard some stock tip on hot copper and he says, oh, mate, hey, what do you reckon about this stock? And I can see from the tickets, you know, some very speculative stock. I I wouldn't even want to encourage that person to invest. So, I just ignore that message because I think that they're the kind of person who will ultimately lose money because they're just basically gambling, and I don't want to be part of the gambling problem. They've they've heard it. They've heard a tip. Yeah, they've and heard that's a what tip. it is. That's they, all it is. It's a tip. it's a ticker to them as well. It's not yeah. even a company that does something. It's just yeah. what do you reckon of this one? I don't know where they got it or why. I have no view on whether it'll go up or down, short term or long term. But I just know that they're not investing in learning more about the company, about how to invest, and how to invest better. On the other hand, I get a lot of people who might have a theory about a certain company. So, say they've been following a company closely and they've noticed that uh, the founder has started selling shares and they might say, oh, hey, Claude, you know, I also own shares um, in Pushpay and, you know, I really like the story and I think they've got great growth, but I noticed that the founder sold down shares recently and he's stepping back from the business. You know, is this something I should be worried about? Now, without me necessarily having the answer to that question, I think it's a good question and it shows that somebody's really trying to understand how they can 
invest better and how they can predict essentially whether a company is going to succeed and fail. At the same time, you have people that are trying to learn more about the valuation side of things. Uh, One of the things I've enjoyed with uh, my newsletter recently is by request, I've just been giving examples of how you calculate things from the primary documents. So the latest few weeks, I've been going through how you calculate the enterprise value of the company, how you calculate the free cash flow value of the company, all from the primary documents, which you therefore can make the necessary adjustments that a data provider might not have automatically made. So these primary documents are... That's like annual reports and, uh, you know, official things that are put to the exchange. So the Appendix 3B happens to be where you'll find the recent share count. Is that, uh, is that what it's called? The Appendix 3B That's right, is the yeah. key document to be looking at, isn't it? Yeah, so if you want to find the most recent number of shares on issue, the place to look is the most recent Appendix 3B. Appendix 3B is what they have to put out every time they issue more shares. So if you go and look at the annual report for that, it might not have captured the most recent Appendix 3B, essentially. Now, data providers are sometimes quite up to date with these things, sometimes they're not. But one of the examples of when data providers are not to be relied on, and I see beginners fall for this trap time and time again, is uh, Morningstar, for example, will not include escrowed shares in their market calculation. So as a result of that, you get these situations where there'll be some small company, often a relatively new listing, and it'll have some shares, maybe a big chunk of founder shares, 30% 30% of the company escrowed. Now, Which means they're, they're held aside. Yeah, they? they're held aside and essentially because this has happened at IPO, they're not even listed on the ASX. Now, the data providers, if you really understand data, you know, this is all coming through in a form. There's like listed, uh, there's total shares, diluted shares, and also listed shares. Now, I think it's Morningstar or whoever provides Comsec and a lot of the brokers with their data, they just use listed shares in calculating the market capitalization. But this... So this is the slices of pizza. How many slices yeah, of the so pizza Yeah, so they're not counting all yeah. the slices. Mm-hmm. So what they then say is um, they'll say they'll get the market capitalization wrong when they automatically report that. So if you log into your Comsec and see and click on the company, you'll actually see the wrong market capitalization there. So if people are just relying on that and then they're saying, oh, they might look at the company and say, such and such a company, oh, it has this much revenue. Maybe it has $3 million in revenue and according to Comsec, a $30 million market cap. So it's 10 times its revenue. And they might, for whatever reason, decide, oh, that's okay. But they might feel differently if they knew that it was actually 20 times revenue because the market cap was actually $60 million. Mm-hmm. But there's many times where essentially something like that is the case because... The market capitalization has not been calculated with all the shares on issue. Now, you'd get those shares from the 3B that'll say this many shares escrow, this many shares total, etc. But if you just rely on the data provider, you could be way off and then one day they're going to come out of escrow, they're going to get listed and the market capitalization will just go up by 30% or double or whatever it is like that. And it always blows my mind to see people investing their money or their family's money but they don't even know the the actual market capitalization of the company they're investing in and there's so many little tricks like this and the people that succeed are the people that learn from those mistakes build up their knowledge base and are able to then invest with an advantage over other people because there's this endless supply of people who haven't really properly understood what they're doing with investing So if you're always learning and making sure that you're careful and trying to understand things better and become a better investor, eventually you sort of get better than enough people that you could be classified as a good investor. Okay, you've started investing in the share market. Now, 
how do you track trades, dividends, distributions, and franking credits, and all those other goodies. Just throw away those clunky spreadsheets with ShareSight. I have my portfolio on ShareSight, and everything is automatically recorded. ShareSight are pleased to extend a special offer to listeners of this podcast. Two months free on an annual premium plan. Go to ShareSight.com forward slash shares for beginners and sign up now for a seven-day free trial. That's ShareSight.com slash shares for beginners. I'm just shocked that I've never actually heard this before about the uh, Appendix 3B and the way of finding out. So when, when you're talking about, are you talking about the market capitalization or the number of slices or the number of slices? So I'm just trying to get the, clear in my head what you're actually saying here. So what the 3B will give you the actual accurate number of slices. Yeah. Then you can times the slices by the share price, which is essentially the size of each slice. And that gives you... And the, that gives you the real market capitalization. Right. Okay. What some data providers do is they don't consider all of the slices because some of them aren't listed on the ASX. So yeah. when they report the automated little market capitalization that you'd see, yeah. Yeah. that's wrong, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, the reason that I bring up this, this is example... Ins- this is insane. But this is so common. Like, yeah. I've... Because I've dealt with retail investors for so long. Yeah. They're like... I, they'll talk to me and they... They are good and they say, hey, this is what I'm trying to figure out and such and such companies. And I'll say, well, there's your little mistake there. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I know this is because once way back, I made this mistake. Yeah. Um, but I learned from it 10 years ago and I don't make that mistake anymore. And, every- and, and this is common, is it, that you'll see it all, all the time? Is it I this- see it among sort of beginner retail investors. Yeah. Almost as long as there's a company that has this escrowed shares mm-hmm. and you can, if somebody's sort of, it's like the little bit of knowledge is dangerous thing. Because uh, I think it is a misleading thing. But, I mean, look, the flip side of it is, I'll, I'll tell you, for the beginners that I see run into trouble, mm-hmm. the biggest and saddest mistake that I see is essentially uh, overconfidence. So, someone will say, oh, look, I've decided to, I've got 100000 to invest. And I'm going to put, oh, and, I, and I've now read about this company, you know, 3P Learning, which I like the idea of their software, yeah. you know, and maybe they've listened to other people. Like, I actually thought 3P Learning was decent myself. Mm-hmm. But as an experienced investor, when I... And I was wrong about this one, by the way. When I bought shares in it, I bought, you know, a, 2 or 3% of my shareholding of my overall portfolio because I wanted to get to know the company. It was a relatively recent listing in these days. So, it had been yeah. floated yeah. with lots of fanfare. As it turned out, 3P Learning provides software, actually not too different from this tally train stuff where it helps train kids so it's like maths games mathletics is the one that uh, many people have heard of now actually what had happened is this was sort of losing its edge there was more and more free alternatives and there was some problems with the business and in the end it was actually floated at a very favorable price for the sellers so it was a bad buy Mm -hmm. but because i just put in a couple of percent i realized it was a bad buy and then eventually reversed my opinion on it sold shares in it and then I lost probably, I can't remember the exact amount, but it would have been maybe around 50% or a little less, but a decent loss on that one. But it wasn't too bad for me in the overall context because I only had a small amount of my portfolio in it because it was a, it was a risky stock. It was a recent listing. However, someone who's beginning has too much confidence. They could put in 10 or 20% into this company that they of don't know overall, of, um... of their overall amount that they're going to invest. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, one mistake has this like really big impact where if you put in 20% of your portfolio into one stock as your first or second stock you've ever bought and then that happens to be a wrong call, then you've lost 10% of your overall portfolio. Mm -hmm. It's like really tragic. I tell the story because I don't want to see that kind of stuff happen. 
especially when if you're going to start investing, if you have 100000 to invest, you should be thinking of investing an entire 20000 in maybe the whole year. Because if the market is about to crash, what if it's... Forget the, the one stock mistake. What if there's about to be another crash and you put in all your $100,000 in one day and then there's a crash the next day? You could lose 30% in a day. Now, of course, that's very unlucky. Unlucky, but I'm just illustrating the point. Many people would be better off dollar cost averaging. So they buy they buy some shares now. If the market sort of goes up and up, those shares will go up. Great, you can keep buying shares. If the market falls down, well, you've still got uh, plenty of your money left to put in at those lower prices. So dollar cost averaging is when you would be deploying that capital at a week at a time or a month at a time yeah so just specified so you might say if you're going to invest so when my father-in-law wanted to start investing he had a set amount of money and we sort of i suggested to him that he sort of invest that over about two years over a two-year period and you know it wasn't perfectly done like clockwork or whatever but the point is he sort of gradually invested that now as it turns out the market went up during that period he would have been better off just putting it all in at the beginning but it's, it's important in case something does go badly, but it's also important in terms of the overall success of that investor mm-hmm. to take their time and not freak themselves out. That means that by the time you've got your full amount of money invested, your full 100000 investing, you'll have already had a year or more of watching how share price is going up, up and down. You'll have made a mistake already and you probably would have hopefully had a success already and you'll already be getting used to the emotions of it like gradually by going in. And also, it's an opportunity for you to decide it's not for you. Uh, what if you've invested your $20,000 or, or $30,000 or $40,000 and you're like, wow, this is too much for me. I don't enjoy this. I don't want to keep up with the research. It's worrying me. Look, you know, I'm not doing too badly, but I don't want to play anymore. Well, you're better off having only invested in a little bit in that scenario. And, and look, the other thing is it gives you a chance to learn about these companies. So if you wanted to actually be a private investor that, that's good at it, you need to follow companies for a period of time. And look, honestly, you don't have to be hands-on forever, but you need to give yourself some time to understand what you're investing in, understand the risks. And if you're doing it gradually, that means that, you know, you might have put in 2% of your overall portfolio in a company and a year later, you're like, oh, wow, this company is not doing what it said it's going to do. It had a lot of big promises in its IPO, but Mm -hmm. it didn't live up to them. At the very least, you'll you wouldn't put any more in that one. Um, you may even decide to sell. So it gives you a chance to learn and hope, one would hope for you to be a successful investor, and certainly for me, you're constantly learning and you're hopefully constantly gradually just making better uh, decisions overall. The best thing you can invest in is your own ability. So it makes sense to have less invested whilst your ability is more nascent. Mm-hmm. And so one of the luckiest things that happened to me is that I, I started really young. So I didn't have a lot of money. I've, I started with $500 as a university student. And so some of my silly mistakes and, you know, that time when I didn't pay attention to it for more than a year because I was doing my honours thesis or whatever it was, Mm -hmm. that all happened when I had much less money and much less, you know, responsibility for what I was investing in. So I think it's, it's better for everyone if they do start slowly because by the time they get more experience then they'll be putting in more money, basically match match your risk with your experience and, and you'll be safer anyway. Okay, can I, if I can hit you with a listener question. 
This is from uh, David from our listener survey. And he asked, why would an ethical investor buy into an ethical company? Your money doesn't go to the company, but to another investor selling out. Surely you should buy into a company you can change by questioning and voting at an AGM. Essentially, the answer is that for someone who's an ethical investor, it's actually just like a principled approach. It's about saying, I don't want to profit from cigarettes because cigarettes, whilst might be fun, give people an all manner of uh, diseases and then it's a lot of suffering. So, for an ethical investor, <laughs> you have to separate two goals of ethical investing. One is that they would like to change people's behavior and hopefully make the world a better place. The other is they don't wish to personally profit from certain activities such as harm. So, the first example of this kind of ethical investing would be probably, not the first, but the most early written about example was the Quakers in England who essentially decided that they weren't going to invest in slavery business. Now, at the time, this wasn't so much because, you know, they were like, and because we're going to stop slavery. It was just more like, we don't want to profit from slavery because uh, for them, that was against God's word and they personally didn't want to go against God's word. I don't think you can separate that thread from ethical investing. For someone who wants to be an ethical investor, I think it, sh- it has to come from a place of like, you just don't want to do it. I'm not saying everybody has to do this. It's completely, you know, obligation free. For me personally, there are certain things that I don't feel comfortable profiting from. So, I don't want to invest in those companies. Now, the second bit is um, more practical, which I also applaud. Uh, look, the, the answer is quite simple. It's that when companies need to raise capital, they benefit from having a higher share price. At the end of the day, a share price is the result of uh, supply versus demand. If you remove supply, then the share price will be lower, the cost of capital will be higher, and certain projects won't happen. Let me give you a practical example of where this there is a practicality for avoiding a company. If you're a coal company... You need a certain amount of money to build a mine. And say um, you need $1 million uh, to expand your mine, for example. And you're going to get a a 6% return on that investment. Now, if the cost of capital to you is below 6%, it makes sense to go ahead and get that capital Mm -hmm. and then invest in the mine. If the cost of capital is above 6%, then it doesn't make sense to expand the mine. That's why when environmental campaigners try to stop a coal mine, they're trying to eliminate sources of capital for that coal mine. They're trying to say to banks, hey, don't do this. You know, it's the wrong thing to do. Um, And they're trying to say to investors, hey, don't don't support this company because it'll make it easier for it to do the coal mine. And the other thing that the other impression I get about your view of ethical investing, it's a lot to do with behavior of a company as well not necessarily that they're doing any good or any anything bad but it's also how they behave yes yeah, so is the, that right yes so there yeah. i think there are actually that so that's the second tranche of like ethical investing so there's actually a increasing body of literature that suggests that at least depending on how you chop it sometimes ethical investors do better and i think that that has to do with the fact that people who work for companies that make the world a better place tend to have more success in those companies. Generally speaking, a company that is focused on trying to save people from you know, unnecessary medical outcomes, for example, helping people be healthier, happier, they're going to have uh, employees that are more 
committed to staying with that. We're talking in general. And they are potentially going to have a high-level management who are more concerned about um, how well the other shareholders do. If you have a company that's in its DNA, not really caring about how it affects other stakeholders because it's perhaps causing some kind of harm in the world, I've always found it interesting why someone would think that a management team and a founder who's built a company that hurts people, why are they going to be really good to the small shareholders? Um, Now, of course, this does happen. There are sometimes that management team happens to have a philosophy towards shareholders, which is I love them and I do the best by them and a philosophy towards other stakeholders, which is like, don't worry about them. But oftentimes you'll have somebody who might be a little bit unfair to both other stakeholders in society and their fellow shareholders. So I think that's the sort of trap that you can avoid when you look for companies that have you know, positive impacts on the world around them. I'll, I'll mention as well, like the third limb of it um, is in the fees you charge your own investors. And I think that that's a real a challenge for the ethical investing industry at the moment because a lot of the ethical funds have typically used that as a reason to perhaps charge more money to their own investors. And you have to question the ethics of that in itself. Of course, you know, it's 2019 now. There are a lot of really, um, you can do ethical indexing at low cost. You've got an increasing array of sort of ethical fund managers now. So you can look at a fair few different options, but it's just something worth thinking about as well. Okay, so tell us about ethical equities and um, how people can get in touch with you and uh, avail themselves of your ethical services. Uh, well, so essentially the best way to get in get in touch with me is to uh, find the Ethical Equities website and I'll also be launching a new website fairly soon uh, called, called A Rich Life. Uh, that's the first time I've publicly announced it, but already we've got the sort of subscribers uh, reading that sort of assorted content. However, you know, Ethical Equities is, is the place to go to find me. You'll find my email address there. There's no big sell, but we definitely try to provide as much information that can help people as possible. And and you've got a track record in uh, successful investing as well. Yeah, so I've been uh, pretty lucky. I've started investing in 2009, so I've had timing on my side. Also, I've picked a few great stocks which have, which have driven it. These days, I, I sort of focus on companies with uh, the big ability to invest in their own growth. That's why um, I like a lot of software companies and technology companies. The, the beauty of software companies, for example, is that once you have the software product, you can really essentially replicate that at very low cost. Now, there is mm. for big enterprise software, there's like implementation costs, but that's how you sort of judge between software companies. You look at how easy is it for them to expand. For those ones that don't have to spend a lot of selling and implementation costs, they can have really high returns on invested capital. Uh, so I've had a lot of luck investing in, in those kind of companies and, you know, along with doing my sort of deep dive research as well into product quality and, and who's running the show and that kind of thing. Great. Thanks very much, Claude, for coming along. Thanks for having me on, Phil. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production with that special Greekalicious flavour. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 